The following program is being brought to you on the Seventh Wave Network. For more information about our network and to check our additional show hosts and topics of interest, please visit SeventhWaveNetwork.com. The Voice America Talk Radio Network is the worldwide leader in live Internet talk radio. Visit VoiceAmerica.com. The views and ideas expressed on the following program are strictly those of the host or guests and do not necessarily reflect the views and ideas held by the Voice America Talk Radio Network, its staff, and management. Good afternoon, and welcome to Authentic Living with Andrea Matthews. Over the next hour, you'll learn how to see your true self in the midst of life's twists and turns. You'll be challenged to think outside of the box when it comes to the mysteries of life. Now, here's your host, Andrea Matthews. Good afternoon, and welcome to the Authentic Living Show. Our guest today, we're very proud to have, is Dr. Larry Dossie, author of several books, including The Power of Premonitions, The Extraordinary Healing Power of Ordinary Things, Healing Beyond the Body, Reinventing Medicine, and his latest and the topic of our discussion today, One Mind, How Our Individual Mind is Part of a Greater Mind and Why It Matters. Dr. Dossie is an internal medicine physician, former chief of staff of Medical City Dallas Hospital, former co-chairman of the panel on mind-body interventions, National Center for Complementary and Alternative Medicine, National Institutes of Health, and he is the executive editor of the peer-reviewed journal Explore, the Journal of Science and Healing. Dr. Dossie lectures all over the world and has appeared on TV and radio many, many times, including the Oprah Show. So you're not going to want to miss one word of this amazing discussion about who we actually are. Welcome, Larry, to the Authentic Living Show. Thank you for being here today. It's always a pleasure. Thanks for your invitation. Oh, I'm so glad to get to talk with you again. And this book is just chock full of wonderful um, profound, uh, not just ideas and concepts, but ways to experience life in a different way. So what was it that pushed you to write this book? Well, that, this book has been on the drawing board for at least 10 years, and uh, it's a summary, sort of an autobiography of uh, where I've come from over the years. Uh, I had some experiences early in my professional career. Actually, the first year I was in practice as an internal medicine physician, in which uh, I n- knew things before they were going to happen. This took the uh, the uh, form of precognitive dreams. Uh, I would dream uh, elaborate uh, and very complicated experiences that my patients would have before they even had them, and they would usually get played out within 24 hours. Uh, there's a whole research area on precognition, which I wrote a book about once, uh, and uh, I just couldn't get away from this this way of knowing, uh, which just really wasn't supposed to happen. In, in my training and uh, education all through medical school and university, uh, I, I learned that the world just could not work like that. You couldn't know things before they happen. You couldn't communicate with people at a distance. All of that was just uh, fiction and fantasy. As it turned out, if those things happen to you personally, there's no way you can get away from uh, confronting them uh, uh, if you if you want to stay honest with yourself. So I began to jump into the literature in this area and was astonished to find out that there were thousands of experiments that actually been done documenting that these things really happen to people. 
uh, I have followed this research for uh, 30 years, and uh, I'm happy to say that the uh, experiments become more and more abundant all the time, and I think we're just at a point in history where we're just going to have to redefine our consciousness, and that's what I've tried to do in this book. Yes, I couldn't agree more. We are sort of wassailing our way back into an awareness of, of, of a much more, much deeper, more profound experience of our lives in this sort of one mind idea. So, okay, let's just talk about what, what, what do you mean by one mind? What is that? Well, it's a uh, picture of the mind that goes beyond the common assumption that your mind is just limited to your skull, to your brain and body, and it's locked into the present. I don't think that fits uh, people's experiences or the uh, actual experiments. Uh, what we're beginning to see is that there are no spatial or temporal limits to consciousness. It just doesn't have any boundaries to it. Uh, we can know things outside the present. We can know them before they happen. We can communicate with people regardless of how far away they are. Uh, this is not fantasy. And because it's uh, hardcore research, we are just absolutely being forced to come up with a different picture of who we are. So the one mind is this uh, image that all of our consciousness is, uh, about 7 billion on the planet right now, uh, are, are linked and connected in a unitary uh, way. And under certain conditions, we can put that into operational effectiveness and do things with it. I think it's a great gift. So the one mind is that domain of consciousness where all of our individual minds come together uh, in ways that uh, fill us with joy, make us happier, more creative, and uh, uh, generally healthier as well. Yeah. Okay. So so this is a really important. It's it it. You know, it's like we've known it on some unconscious level, and it's been talked about for centuries, but we really need to bring it more into our awareness. Is that That's part of the reason why you wrote the book. Well, exactly. And I, I think it's only fair to say that this idea is hardly original. Uh, one of the earliest expressions of it is the old uh, idea of the Akashic uh, records, which in Hinduism go back 3,000 years. Uh, there's been a, really an unbroken thread uh, of this idea through human history. Uh, most recently, uh, it has erupted in the views of uh, the great uh, psychiatrist, uh, Carl Jung, who talked about the collective consciousness and unconsciousness of humankind. William James, the founder of American psychology, also believed in a unitary one mind. And one of the things I bring out in the book is something that surprises a lot of people, some of the greatest physicists and scientists in the 20th century, unknown to most people, actually believed in the unitary one mind. I talk about David Bohm, the great physicist, endorsement of this idea, and also the great Nobel uh, physicist Erwin uh, Schrodinger, whose uh, famous equations lie at the heart of quantum physics, also endorsed what he actually called the one mind. Mm-hmm. Yeah, and there's more yet being done. There's more, you know, uh, organi- as you already know, I'm sure, um, organizations like IONS and, and the Heart Math Institute are really sort of really experimenting with how we can evidence this in a, uh, a, a way that gives scientists some kind of background for what it is we're saying here. It's not just a philosophy, but it's a reality, an actuality. Well, that's right. Uh, you know, I hear all the time that uh, this 
only people from California believe this stuff, and uh, <laughs> I, I just want to emphasize that nothing could be farther from the truth. Uh, in the book, I talk about one survey of uh, academic uh, professors in their universities and medical schools and so on, and as it turns out, over half of academic scientists and professors of all sorts, really, believe that uh, ESP, or extrasensory perception, has already been proved uh, experimentally or is likely to be proved in the near future. So it isn't true that you have to be wacky and you know, undisciplined in your thinking to believe uh, in this uh, idea of consciousness because, unknown to most people, most academics already accept this. Mm-hmm. Yeah, and, I, you know, so what is it that makes us want to resist it? What What is it that makes us want to go, yeah, only California people believe that stuff, so, you know? Yeah, I, I spend a lot of time thinking about the reasons why people push back on this, and uh, I think that there are many, many reasons uh, that have to do with how we're basically, we manage to become hypnotized culturally as we grow up, that none of this could be hap- happening, and... Uh, you know, it's just goofy, goofy stuff. Uh, I, I think we've we developed bad habits in thinking. Uh, it comes at us uh, from many directions. Uh, one of the most potent arguments against this is the emphasis in our culture on individuality, pulling ourselves up by our own bootstraps, you know, and uh, this idea of self responsibility, which is quite wonderful as far as it goes, but that's only one side of the coin. The the more uh, we buy into the idea that we're separate individuals, entirely uh, separate from our fellow humans, uh, the more we're going to push back against this idea of unity and connectedness. The, the fact is a healthy individual is both. Uh, we aren't arguing against a profound respect for the self and the ego. It's important that that be maturely developed in everybody. But uh, we don't want to exclude the evidence that we're connected and united uh, with uh, others as well. Because if we do that, we pay a terrible price, which I talk about in the book. What is that? What is the price? What is the price for really not recognizing <laughs> one mind? Well, it, it's terrible price. I, I think it has to do with our survival as a species on the planet Earth. Uh, I don't think it would come as a shock to people who listen to this program to to be told that we are suffering an epidemic on this planet of selfishness and uh, greed and and uh, actual destructiveness. And, and I think that the best way out of uh, this is not through... Uh, tinkering with uh, things politically and economically, although there's a case to be made for that. The best way, I think, is to open up and uh, honor our connectedness and unity and oneness with all of sentient life on this planet. Alice Walker, the great novelist, said that anything we, anything we love can be saved. And we love those things with which we feel connected and, and a part of. And so, if we're going to confront these huge global problems such as uh, degradation of the environment, global climate change, uh, destruction of oceans, and and grinding poverty, and and all of this sort of thing. Uh, I think we're just going to have to revolutionize 
the way we think about who we are and how we're connected, not just with other humans, but with all of sentient life on Earth. Unless we can manage to do that, I think we're going to go under. And uh, I'm not alone in this thinking. So if anyone thinks that we're just talking, you know, armchair philosophy here, I, I would really disagree. I think these issues are hugely practical. And as a matter of fact, that our future probably depends on these concepts. I couldn't agree more. I, you know, I often think about this whole idea, which you, the, the words grinding poverty, that's the way I think of that, is how we are so shut off uh, internally from recognizing just how grinding that poverty actually is and how much money, you know, floats around, uh, you know, movie makers and, you know, all, all the billions of dollars that are just floating around all the time that, don't go there because we're shut off. And if we're connected to the one mind, then we it would go there. Well, I think you're exactly right on that point. You know, we are involved uh, in a huge, fierce cultural debate at this moment uh, in this country uh, over the issue of poverty. There's a tendency to blame the victims, to say that people who are, who are in poverty and are really struggling... Uh, somehow are lazy and unfit uh, and deserve uh, deserve their poverty. I think this is the world turned upside down. I, I just think that uh, we have to find ways of uh, turning that uh, blame the victim attitude around uh, because uh, we're not going to be able to thrive and meet the challenges that face us as long as we have that idea people in need yeah absolutely I, I couldn't agree more and, and that's you know goes back to what we said why do people resist this thinking is it's easier isn't it to not have to have empathy for a bunch of other people we don't even think we know oh exactly. you know <laughs> so yeah uh, well, absolutely I'm glad you bring up empathy i uh, uh there's been a great deal of neurological neurological research on people's experience of empathy uh and a lot of uh, so-called fMRI brain scans have been done when people are challenged with witnessing people in need and, and so on. And people have different brain uh, reactions on being confronted with images of poor people and suffering people and sick people and so on. Some people just don't seem to have the mental, the neurological hardwiring to properly experience empathy and compassion. Uh, so... You know, we're talking about uh, biological differences in people and their ability to be empathic, but uh, uh, that may sound, you know, defeatist because what can you do to change your biology? The thing is, you can do a lot uh, to change your reactions to other people. Uh, And there's been research on how people can open up to empathy and compassion if they don't really experience it uh, in a natural way. So... It's not all hopeless, even though we might acknowledge, you know, that people have some hardwired differences in them. Yeah, I, I agree with that. I, I mean, I'll just share this real briefly. I had an experience several years ago where I worked in a wilderness camp with some um, delinquent, what they call delinquent boys, and I really worked with them to try to teach them some empathy skills, and it started taking hold. I was, uh, it took a little while, and took some real exercises to to sort of put the mind in that position of being willing to be empathic. But it, it did work. I do think that there is some work that can be done there if we did it. 
you know, there's a uh, line of research that was really popular a few years back that uh, is still being looked at by a few researchers. It's something called a helper's high. And uh, what this was was the discovery that people who involve themselves in charitable work, like working in soup kitchens and so on, who actually got their hands dirty helping helping unfortunate people, uh, they experienced a kind of high. And uh, this sometimes amounted to actual euphoria. And these people did not get sick quite as often as uh, people who did not uh, engage in this sort of work. And so there were biological uh, repercussions. They were healthy, they were happier, and uh, uh, thus the name of this uh, little syndrome called the helper's high. And uh, it's worth looking at because it really is uh, extraordinarily positive in its orientation. It shows just what you were saying, that there are ways of helping people uh, experience the empathic and compassionate uh, uh, ways of being. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Well, I, yeah. Yeah. We, that rational part of us that wants to just be in the, the uh, cortex, you know, cerebral cortex, wants to not to miss out on that piece. But it's just so vital to our actual living experience, but not just being alive, but being full of life, you know. Exactly. Yeah. Well, uh, you know, we just have a few more minutes before the break, but I want to just bring this part in. You've talked about animals a lot in the book. Why'd you do that? I, I want to make the point that consciousness doesn't belong just to people. Uh, there's no evidence that humans are the only people who possess uh, the one mind or even consciousness in general. Uh, I, I think that it helps us make the case if we can show that uh, the minds of uh, animals function in a way that appears to be united and connected. And so I give a lot of examples in the book about uh coordinated behavior that just can't be explained in birds and fish and uh, uh, larger animals that we have to bring in another way of communicating. And it seems that they have almost a common consciousness that operates throughout the herd or the flock uh, or the school of, of fish and so on. So I just want to say that one mind is part of nature. It isn't limited uh, to humans. It's a pervasive aspect of the natural world yeah and i just i always love to watch that i have my office looks down over a, a sort of a fountain area and there's pigeons all around and i watch them fly in that patterned way all the time and it's just so soulful and so uh, rich i mean you just can't miss the fact that they obviously are operating out of something else besides what we understand to be rational thinking <laughs> Yeah, you know, there are really some great videotapes uh, available for free on the Internet, which I give links to in the book, particularly flocks of birds such as starlings, which just wheel and gyre in ways that you can't uh, explain by sensory mechanisms here. All thousands and thousands of birds moving instantaneously uh, in beautiful coordinated patterns. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Well, we're going to come back and talk to Larry Dossi some more. Be here for that. The Voice America 7th Wave Channel. On the program Inside Out, our outsides match our insides. 
Join host Beth Green along with co-host James Maynard for an insightful weekly journey that lets us all be real with no boundaries. We'll discuss current events, interview amazing guests, challenge old ideas, and see ourselves and our world more clearly. It's about you as much as us. So you're invited to call in, write in, and most of all, tune in. Listen for Inside Out, live every Tuesday at 3 p.m. Pacific Time, 6 p.m. Eastern Time on the Voice America 7th Wave Channel. Explore subconscious programs, belief systems, and past life memories that may be sabotaging your life. Join host Dorian Light on her show, All About You, as she helps you to shift change and heal your life. Each week, Dorian does a light session using psychic energetics and the language of light to energetically shift and clear negative patterns you have stored regarding that week's topics. Step into the realm of infinite possibilities for your life. All About You airs live Wednesdays at 8 p.m. Eastern Time, 5 p.m. Pacific on 7th Wave. Being Here with Ariel and Shia Kane is an ordinary person's guide to modern-day enlightenment. This show is an exciting exploration which opens the door to living in the moment. Don't miss Being Here. Tune in every Wednesday at 9 a.m. Pacific, 12 noon Eastern with Ariel and Shia Kane, right here on the 7th Wave Network. Invite meaning and inspiration to your life. This is the Voice America 7th Wave Channel. You're listening to Authentic Living with Andrea Matthews. We want to hear from you. If you have a question or comment about today's show, call in now, toll free, 1-866-472-5795. That's 1-866-472-5795. You can also send your questions or comments by email to Andrea at andreamatthewslpc.com. Now, back to Authentic Living with Andrea Matthews. Okay, so most of you know that the Authentic Living Show is sponsored by the American Institute of Holistic Theology. Well, the college this month is making a very special announcement. They're announcing the opening of the 2014 curriculum, which many of you will find extremely interesting. They're not offering you a greater, uh, excuse me, they are offering you a greater variety of programs and more in-depth studies for the courses you choose. You already know that you can get a master's degree, a doctorate degree, or a ministerial bachelor's degree at AIHT, but now at the doctoral level, we offer not only the PhD in all of our programs, but we offer a doctor of ministry degree in all of our programs as well. And in the Holistic Theology program, you can get a Doctor of Theology degree. But that's not all. The programs themselves have changed as well. Now you can get a degree in Holistic Theology, Holistic Health, Holistic Ministries, Metaphysics, and Parapsychology. And that's still not all. Now we've added more depth to your education by offering a greater number of courses that start at the introductory level and move all the way to the advanced level. For example, in the Holistic Theology program, you can take Judaism 1, 2, and 3, with each level offering a greater depth of understanding. Or in our Parapsychology program, you can take Psychic Skills 1, 2, and 3. And those are just a few of the examples. You can get the whole picture by going to www.aiht.edu. Or if you'd like to talk directly to the admissions director, call Beverly Love at 800-650-4325. 
What's most important to AIHT's model is the exploratory nature of the studies that reach to the depths of all the world's religions, traditions, and paths, and even transcend them to find the mystical core of them all in order to facilitate your own journey to your own authentic spirituality. Utilizing as your text-writing teachers, spiritual experts from all over the world, the coursework allows students to explore and find their own spiritual experience and path, as well as to become credentialed to bring their own unique gift to the world. So AIHT is challenging the world one student at a time. You want to know more? Go to www.aiht.edu or contact Admissions Director Beverly Love at 800-650-4325. Again, that's 800-650-4325. You know, Oprah says education is the key to unlocking the world, a passport to freedom. Call and get your passport today. And today we're talking to Dr. Larry Dossie about one mind, how our individual mind is part of the greater consciousness and why it matters. And just before the break, we were talking about what it is that, uh, you know, how animals can prove to us basically with their behavior that the mind really is one and that they're a part of that one mind. Sometimes I think, Larry, that, that um, you know, we've, we've perpetuated this idea for centuries that we are smarter than the animals, but I often wonder if we're not they're probably teaching us it's reverse. Well, I think there's a good case to be made for that. And I think that idea that uh, we're above uh, the animals on top of the pyramid is just an idea that's gotten us into terrible trouble because it's created a disrespect for living uh, uh, all of life on this planet. And uh, we paid a heavy price for that. And if we're going to survive on this planet in any meaningful way, we're going to have to correct that. Yeah, absolutely. Many, many problems arise out of that idea of dominating the world, right? Yeah, so, okay, we know that there's one mind now, so what? how does a person access the one mind? Well, I think the first mistake, <laughs> mistake people make is uh, trying too hard. Uh, if the idea of the one mind is uh, valid, which I'm convinced it is, then it's not something you have to manufacture uh, or create. It's who we are already. So rather than engineering the one mind into existence, we simply have to open up to it and sort of set the stage for its appearance. Uh, There are many, many ways that have been utilized throughout history uh, to actualize this experience. Uh, Sometimes it just happens all of a sudden spontaneously in people's lives. We call those experiences epiphanies, and uh, they're quite wonderful, but... Uh, they're not as common as we would like them to be. Uh, so throughout history, a lot of disciplines have uh, arisen to help people live into this awareness. The most common, of course, is some form of meditation or contemplation where we sit down, be quiet, and learn how to pay attention. And when we do that, then this awareness usually, uh, in time, bubbles up from our unconscious uh, domain and become something that we experience as fulfillment and a sense of joy and sometimes revelation. Uh, I find in my own life that there are other ways to uh, make this experience more likely. Uh, Exposure to nature is something that really is very helpful in my own life. My wife, Barbara, and I live on the side of a mountain, and it's just uh, a, a glorious spot, and it's in the foothills of the Sangre de Cristo Mountains in a pinyon and juniper forest. And so exposure to natural beauty is one way that has been helpful to millions of people throughout history. I, I think exposure to beauty in any form 
helps us access the one mind experience, whether it's through listening to majestic music or viewing great art or reading magnificent poetry and, and so on. So I think the ways of accessing the one mind really are just endless. Basically, uh, the challenge for us moderns is to turn off the smartphone and sit down and be quiet. And I, I think that's increasingly difficult for people to do because we're becoming habituated to filling all of our hours with some sort of sensory input. A lot of it's electronic, and a lot of it just, I think, prevents us from accessing those deeper modes of knowing that can uh, hook us up with the one mind. Yeah, I think it's an interesting paradox. I want to uh, play with that for a minute, if you don't mind, sure. because I, it's a... Uh, on the one hand, we're constantly contacting everyone else in the world with Facebook and Twitter and all of that, which is a kind of one mind. And on the other hand, we're doing it so electronically that we're staying out of touch with the one mind. Well, that's exactly right. You know, there's an evolving area of research uh, having to do with loneliness. And it's beginning to look like that... The more time people spend uh, in electronic communication with others through smartphones and, and whatnot, the greater the degree of loneliness they experience. Uh, this comes as a real shock to a lot of people because these things are supposed to keep us in touch with people uh, and diminish the sense of loneliness. Uh, in practice, it works somewhat uh, opposite. People seem to be substituting electronic hookups with uh, in uh, for for a FaceTime with other people, and, and it's a way of uh, isolating yourself. Really, you you, you know if you if you're online, uh, then you can substitute that for actual human face to face contact. And because people do make that substitution, their loneliness doesn't diminish; it actually increases. Uh, I think this this is one of the prices that people are paying for uh, becoming addicted to electronic uh, media. Very interesting. I'm, I'm glad you brought up that study. That's really not, interesting to know. You have a t- uh, chapter in the book called Telesomatic Events. Can you tell us about that? Yeah, telesomatic uh, events are uh, fascinating to me because they occur in people who are extremely close to one another. The classic example and the one I play with in the book is uh, what happens between identical twins. This is of interest to me because I am one. and. Hmm. Uh, my twin brother and I, all of our life, have had experiences where we share thoughts at a distance. We even shared physical symptoms at a distance. And besides that, I'm married to a twin. And my wife, Barbara, and her twin brother have had these distant experiences suggesting a, a kind of one mind and uh, for all of their life. So uh, I've, I've had uh, an upfront personal experience with this. In the book, I talk about experiences between twins that show that we seem to have uh, not just a, a distant communication between thoughts and, and, and mental phenomena, but actually physical phenomena. And a, a case I mentioned in the book involves identical four-year-old twin girls in Spain, uh, where this case originated. And uh, what happened was one day one of the little girls stayed home to help her mother with uh, household chores while the father took the other little twin girl off to visit the grandparents who were tens of miles away. And as it turned out, the little girl who stayed home to help her mother touched a red-hot iron and erupted immediately in a 
large second-degree burn, a big blister on one hand. And as it turned out, at the grandparents' house, at the same time, the other little twin girl erupted in an identical blister on the same hand and on the same part of the hand. Uh, this became quite famous in that part of Spain. I mean, these little girls became famous overnight. Psychiatrists uh, descended on the family and, with permission, did tests on them and showed that if you separate these girls, one in the attic and one in the basement, and stimulated one, the other responded in the same way at the same time without any kind of sensory connection between them. Uh, This is just powerful evidence that minds connect uh, across space. And these so-called telesomatic events are, I think, uh, powerful evidence that our consciousness just doesn't stay put in individual brains. It has the ability to reach out across barriers in space and time and unite and uh, behave uh, as a single mind. So that's amazing, and and you know, I guess there would be some people would say, but and, and probably a lot of people would say, well, that's just for some people. Some people have that ability, but other people don't. And yeah, I, I, that's a good uh, point to bring up. But the fact is that uh, most of these kinds of events uh, take place not between twins, although they're the classic uh, study in this. It's between anyone who is emotionally bonded with someone else. And this includes siblings. Uh, The classic example and the most common example is the connection between a loving mother and her child. Everybody has heard uh, the mother who just knows her child is in danger somehow, somewhere, and rushes out to grab the kid out of the swimming pool before she drowns or something like that. Those cases are so common, they don't even get reported anymore. So emotional bondedness uh, between siblings, parents, and children, between lovers, and so on, uh, also constitutes a, a, a mechanism or a pathway for these sorts of things to happen. I think this connectedness is inter- integral in everyone to some degree. Uh, as you point out, you know, it, it uh, erupts in spades in some people, like the cases I just mentioned. But I think we all share this connectedness at a deep level. Yeah, I I had an experience, I'll share real briefly, my sister was in an automobile accident, I was at home at night, midnight-ish, reading for some course I was taking, and all of a sudden I just knew that she was dead, she wasn't, it turned out she wasn't, but I, I knew that she was dead, and I knew that she'd been hurt seriously, and I was like, got immediately in this very definite praying mode, called my mother to find out if she knew anything, and she said, no, go back to bed, you're being silly. And, uh-huh. and uh, you know, the next morning, of course, we found out she was in the hospital and, and had been in a near-death, not near-death experience, but she almost died. Oh, my. And, uh, yeah, so, yeah, I can definitely relate to that, knowing things that you're not connected with. So, yeah, absolutely. Well, Andrea, ever, since this book has uh, come out, I've been flooded with uh, letters and emails from uh, readers from all over the uh, actually, the Western world, uh, they just want to share with me their, their story. Uh, I think I've got enough for a, another book here. Uh, some of these stories are just, they just knock your socks off. And I people bet. often begin their story with by saying, uh, you know, I, I've never told anybody this before, but so... I, I think the book has given people an outlet and a permission uh, of sorts to, you know, come forward and just uh, reveal what, for many of them, has been one of the most meaning, meaningful experiences in their life. 
Oh yeah, you you can't you can't ever look back on something like that and deny that there's some kind of connection that's very valid. You just once you've had that, you can't. Absolutely. I'm so glad you're getting those letters too. I hope you do make a book out of that. That would be very interesting for people to read. I think. Well, <clears throat> stay tuned. <laughs> yeah. All righty. Okay. Well. T- all right. So one of the things we've talked earlier about our resistance, and we just have a few minutes before the break, but I want to ask this question because I think it's just vital. It, um, one of the things that we are most afraid of, I think, is a sense of annihilation, and this idea of one mind makes us wonder whether or not we're going to just go away in some kind of oneness that means we don't exist anymore as a self. So can you say something about that? Yeah. Uh, A lot of people really get uptight about the idea of the one mind because they think that if that's real, then they'll just be uh, homogenized into some, you know, uh, uh, existential goo where they can't tell themselves from anybody else and and so they'll lose their sense of personality and identity and so on. Uh, actually, it doesn't work out that way. The people who enter this domain uh, and feel an overwhelming sense of oneness and connectedness with with the whole world, really, where no separations exist, experience exactly the opposite. They come back saying that their sense of uh, who they are is enhanced. It isn't done away with. And uh, I hope that uh, we can, in the next segment, spend some time on this idea of immortality uh, as well, because I think this is one of the great contributions of this idea of the one mind, that since we are what I call non-local or infinite in time, then this suggests very strongly that we're eternal and immortal, and that the most essential part of who we are just does not die. And so I think this gives hope to people to overcome this fear of death and annihilation, which I think has caused more suffering for people than all the physical diseases combined, because it uh, creates a, an atmosphere of fear that many people live up front with all their life. And so I think this is an avenue in which we can go down that will help us uh, eliminate that kind of uh, terror. Oh, absolutely. I think that's part of the reason why we cling so much to an idea of who we are, is because we're afraid that we're we're not. If we're not that, we're not anything, you know. That's right. So, yeah, yeah um, and and we could be something much deeper than that small, limited version of who we are. So, yeah, absolutely. Yeah, we definitely will talk about that after the break. And uh, we are going to take that break now. So, stay tuned for more from Larry Dossie and One Mind. This is the Voice America 7th Wave Channel. Are you dealing with a personal loss in your life? It can be just about anything, such as the loss of a partner through death or separation, something significant of value to you, the loss of a pet, or maybe something is missing in your health or wealth. Tune in to Healing from Loss with Brenda B. Host Brenda Blindenbaugh and co-host Monique McDonald are here to help you transform the loss in your life from pain to joy and move forward. Listen live every Wednesday at 10 a.m. Pacific Time, 1 p.m. Eastern Time on the Voice America 7th Wave Channel. When you learn to see things from a spiritual perspective, it changes the way you see virtually everything in your life. 
Listen for Dr. Paula Joyce and her program, Uplift Your Life, Nourishment of the Spirit. Our program will help you get rid of the negative aspects of your life and invite love, joy, and prosperity into your life. Turn that negative feeling into a positive one. Tune in to Uplift Your Life, Nourishment of the Spirit, every Thursday at 11 a.m. Eastern Time, 8 a.m. Pacific Time on the Voice America 7th Wave Channel. We're making it easier to listen to the Voice America Talk Radio Network live wherever you go on iPhone, BlackBerry, or Android. Download it from the Apple iTunes App Store, BlackBerry App World, or Android Market. The Voice America 7th Wave Channel. Be extraordinary. Be the change. You're listening to Authentic Living with Andrea Matthews. We want to hear from you. If you have a question or comment about today's show, call in now, toll free, 1-866-472-5795. That's 1-866-472-5795. You can also send your questions or comments by email to Andrea at andreamatthewslpc.com. Now, back to Authentic Living with Andrea Matthews. Well, I want you to hear the clip we have of Oprah's Super Soul Sunday coming up this Sunday, March the 30th. She's going to be talking with Gary Zukoff, who is celebrating 25 years of the Seat of the Soul. She's going to interview this spiritual teacher and best-selling author for the 25th anniversary of his groundbreaking book, The Seat of the Soul. They offer fresh insights into those popular topics, how to heal addiction, how to understand emotions, and challenge fears. Listen to this clip. Sunday. His ideas helped to shift the way I saw myself in the world and even helped inspire this network. I don't believe we'd be here without the seat of the soul. Super Soul All-Star Gary Zukav. One of my favorite spiritual teachings of all time. What Gary has to say about addiction can be a paradigm shifter. It is profoundly spiritual. Plus, what a recent brush with death taught this master teacher. Oh my goodness. Super Soul Sunday. All new. Sunday, 11 a.m. 10 Central. Only here. Well, I'm going to be there for that. I hope you will be too. And remember, right after that, Oprah and Eckhart Tolle, excuse me, uh, Eckhart Tolle are talking about another chapter of his book, A New Earth. So you want to be there for that as well. The uh, chapter two of that book is Ego, the Current State of Humanity. So be here for that. All right, we're talking today to Dr. Larry Dossie about his book, One Mind. And we were talking just before the break, Larry, about uh, the, the, how the One Mind sort of uh, initiates the possibility that we, can, we are immortal and eternal. You want to say some more about that? Well, the evidence, I think, uh, comes from several angles. One is people who have actually had near-death experiences uh, and has come as close to death as you can without actually passing over. Uh, there are about 15 million people now in America who have had near-death experiences, you know, and looking back, uh, who knew? I mean, before Raymond Moody wrote his book in the 1970s, Life After Life, then this was just an unknown area. But now, with resuscitation attempts in modern hospitals, people are reporting uh, these things uh, all over the place. One of the things that uh, happens when people come back from these experiences is that they describe a 
profound sense of being connected with everything there is. Uh, this is a sense of unity and oneness with with everything, and it is so real and vivid that it's totally transformative of these people's lives when they recover. Uh, they're never the same. It's as if they've passed through the eye of a needle, and there's just no going back to the former belief that you're just an isolated individual uh, in this life. So there's that kind of experience, and I, I think that uh, we should take these extremely seriously because they give us an insight that can be combined with other ways of uh, looking at this through experimental evidence. What we know is that people, when put to the test, can share thoughts at a distance even from the other side of the earth. Uh, we can know things outside the present uh, up to weeks before they even happen. Uh, there are hundreds of these careful experiment, experiments by now which show that this is just the way we we operate. Now, if you think about the implications of this, they're absolutely profound. Uh, what they show is that there's some aspect of our consciousness that can't be kept in a box. Uh, it uh, just uh, uh, is independent of separation and space. Uh, it's even independent of confinement to the present. Uh, it's what I call non-local, which is a term that's being used uh, everywhere these days to describe this aspect of consciousness. Non-local mind and non-local consciousness, if you Google them, turn up thousands of hits. This is the emerging picture of consciousness. It really disturbs a lot of people because it sounds blasphemous and heretical. It sounds like we're claiming to be God. If we say we're infinite in time, that means that we're immortal and eternal. We've always attributed that to the absolute or to God or goddess, uh, whatever term we choose. And these experiments show that we're infinite in space. So that describes uh, omnipresence, which is also a quality that we've always ascribed to the divine. So what we're saying here is something that uh, is theologically uh, really rather explosive. It sounds like we're claiming to be God. This has been understood in many ways theologically over the ages. Uh, one metaphor that has frequently been used is the relationship of a drop of ocean water to the larger ocean. You know, if you look at chemically at a drop of ocean water, it's the same thing as the entire ocean. Uh, but it's totally different in terms of uh, power and extent and, and so on. So uh, in the same way, people can have qualities that are identical with the divine without actually being the divine, in the same sense that an ocean drop of water can uh, be identical to the entire ocean chemically, but not in terms of power and extent and so on. I think people ought not to get too... Uh, uptight about this idea of blasphemy and heresy when we talk about the one mind because uh, the mystical insights of all the great religions point in this direction. Mm-hmm. And I think it's simply a matter of honoring who we are. We can call it the divine within without actually claiming to be God. Yeah, I think that that whole idea of being God is, is one of those... Um, um, Boogie Bears that makes us want to to resist the whole idea, but if we are if we are quite you know uh, 
the part of the non-local reality, as you've just said, and and part of the sort of quantum physics of beingness, you know, in form and in formlessness, then what's the problem? Well, the problem is a fundamentalist way of looking at things. You know, uh, people who grow up in our culture tend to think that they arrive on this earth uh, totally sinful and, you know, or hell-bound unless they're redeemed by the merciful act of uh, the divine. The idea of the one mind turns that upside down. It says that we come into life with inner divinity, and our goal is to somehow realize that as part of our journey on this earth. So uh, uh, there is a huge tension that uh, develops uh, between a fundamentalist versus a one-mind view. But I'm just encouraged uh, on looking at the mystical aspects of even fundamentalism. I mean, if you dig deep deep enough, you can find it every religion, including the Christian faith, uh, the mystical side where people honor their inner divinity and... uh, and uh, the idea that they're part of the divine and the divine dwells within them. So I think that this, uh, uh, this dispute over uh, what is considered blasphemy and heresy in the one mind, I, I just think it's an artificial uh, uh, argument that uh, need not be. Could not agree more. Could not agree more. Yes, I, 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 I think that at the base, in all the, <clears throat> the mystical aspects of all religions, there is, in the root language, even in the Bible, we find that there is this concept of oneness and, and sort of divine beingness that we actually participate are in and are constituent with the divine. So it's, yeah, very powerful stuff there if we go looking for it. But we're afraid to look for it, aren't we? Yep, we are. You know, <laughs> but, you know, the, the, Thanks to the way things work, people can experience this uh, spontaneously often. And uh, uh, when they do, Andrea, they, this just overcomes all you know, rational arguments against this. When, when it happens to you and you come back with that sense of fulfillment and joy and sense of oneness, which is transformative, you don't have any patience with the artificial theological arguments against this because you know and because you know there's never any going back because uh, uh, this becomes realer than real to you. Yeah, it's kind of the distinction between rational intellectualism and peace. <laughs> well put. Indeed. Yeah. Well, you talk about creativity, which is a, a function of the one mind. I want to explore that a little bit with you as well. Well, I uh, am fascinated by some of the great uh, inventors and creators uh, and artists and musicians and so on who have uh, entered a space where they felt taken up with uh, oneness and unity and connectivity with everything there is and come out of that with some of the most uh, productive and creative uh, uh, events in their life. Uh, One of the people I talk about in the book is the great inventor, American inventor Thomas Edison, who uh, believed very strongly in the idea of the one mind. Uh, Edison, <clears throat> Edison is on record of saying that he never invented anything. Uh, this is kind of a shocker because we all know what he did invent, and uh, the light bulb and the phonograph and moving pictures and uh, on and on and on. But he said that uh, he never came up with any of this. He said his ideas come to him from the universe. He said... I get my ideas from the outside, not the inside. And so people didn't want to 
pay attention to this particular view that Edison had. You know, we wanted to immortalize him as the world's greatest inventor and uh, make him, you know, a special individual. And so a lot of people throughout uh, uh, subsequent American history have been very impatient with his ideas of uh, getting his information from the universe at large. But he felt that there was a reservoir of information that he could draw on, which uh, is just an extension of the premise of the one mind. And uh, in the book, I talk about a lot of famous artists and uh, famous musicians throughout history who have uh, had the same uh, opinion of where their creativity comes from as Edison did. And so these are some of the most uh, brilliant people our culture has thrown up. And we ought to pay attention to them. I mean, if we want uh, some information about creativity, we ought to go to the creative individuals who were outstanding in their creativity. And so often, this is what they will say. They're part of something larger that goes beyond the individual sense of self and uh, individual achievement. We should pay more attention to that. Absolutely, I agree. It's and and even I, I'm sure you must have experienced this in all the books you've written. I've certainly experienced it. I, you know, I've talked to other people in writing workshops and things like that that experienced this whole idea of. I mean, it's not an idea; it's just an experience of your writing. Your hand is doing the work, or your fingers are flying across the keyboard. But there's something else happening entirely, and it's almost like it's coming through you. You know? Well, yes. Yeah. You know, I can go back, uh, this is my 12th book, and I can go back in earlier books and <clears throat> reread them, and honest to God, I don't know where some of that came from. Mm-hmm. I, uh, and it's a powerful experience, because you realize that you don't have to depend on your individual neurons inside your little teeny cranium for everything that uh, uh, you create. And so I, I'm with Edison. <laughs> I'm with Edison on this. I, I think a lot of this comes from the outside. And it comes from a reservoir of information, which uh, I think uh, uh, is just an extension of the idea of the one mind. There are many examples I give in the book of where this just erupts in people's lives and sometimes lead, leaves them in, in tears with uh, a profound sense of gratitude that something is working beyond their individual uh, understanding that is quite wonderful. Okay, Larry, if you could just spend just a second telling uh, the listening audience how they might connect with you about your web page and anything like that you want to share with us for just a second before we go. Sure, I'd love to. Uh, people can reach me through my website, which is www.larrydossiemd.com. That's larrydossiemd.com, and it's D-O-S-S-E-Y, by the way. And the books are available in all major bookstores. Wonderful, wonderful. And really, I would encourage you to read the books because they truly are wonderful. So that's it for today. Sad to say we got to go, but uh, we will be back next week with some more. We're talking next week to Linda Backman, and so you want to be here for that. And uh, so thank you so much, Larry, for being on the show. Always a pleasure. All right. And remember, your job, should you choose to accept it, is to give birth to yourself. Thanks again for listening to Authentic Living with Andrea Matthews. Join us again next Wednesday afternoon at 1 p.m. Pacific, 4 p.m. Eastern Time here on the 7th Wave Network. We'll talk again next week.